half a million people have heard the gospel through those mobile clinics. There's a shorter video. If you go back through the week of prayer from a couple of weeks ago, um, I put that video and then a shorter video from him as well. Um, And literally, it's about a minute and a half long, and I can't watch it without just nearly bursting into tears because he ends it with saying, we've been praying for 10 years for a church to start in this community. It was the community that was being pictured there. And a church started out of that mobile clinic. He said, there were no people worshiping Jesus in this community until today. That's why we give. That's why we exist. That's the purpose. That's the function of the church. You with me? Like, this is all form. That's the function of the church. And so I want to encourage you to pray and to give and and to go as the opportunities arise. Next week, you're going to get to hear from our missionaries that we're sending out. Um, They're going to come and they're going to stand off camera. So if you're watching online, you're not going to be able to see their faces just for security reasons. But they're going to come and they're going to share with us. So be here in person and you're going to have a chance to pray with them. Uh, They're working on getting their visas now to be able to head overseas. And so in the middle of all of this global pandemic, they're heading to the nations to make sure they have the hope of Christ. And so I want to ask you to be praying for them and be here next week to support them as well. We also have the great joy of being able to pray together as God's people. And so I wanted to uh, let you know of a couple of people before we jump into God's word. I wanted to let you know of a couple of people to be praying for. I'll be praying for the Broyles family. So Tom's family, um, his, uh, his father, and mother are dealing with some of the COVID issues and that sort of thing. And his father was hospitalized and has come home, evidently. So praise the Lord for that. So be praying for them. He's 94. So be praying for him. Uh, we want to be praying for the Hash family and the Lewis family. Continue lifting them up. Was able to visit with them because they're off quarantine now, uh, some last night. So praise the Lord for that. And I just got a text message before 1015 service saying, uh, that Pat had a great night last night and woke up this morning in great spirits and was able to actually get herself up today. So praise the Lord for that. We want to continue thanking the Lord for how he's moving and working. Uh, Emma Way is having surgery tomorrow, so be sure to pray for her. And so all of these are people that we want to be lifting up and praying for. And we know that there are so many more prayer requests, but I wanted to take a point of personal privilege right now and embarrass someone that I love embarrassing and I haven't been able to embarrass for several months. So, Allison's home. And I'm excited about that. Uh, So, Allison is off at the Air Force Academy and I was able to come home. And we're thankful to have you here. And she loves it when I do this. And I've done it since you were like yay big. And she, she adores it. And um, and so but continue to pray for her and continue to pray for her family. And thank you for your willingness uh, to go to learn, to grow, to serve. And we're proud of you. We want you to know that. OK. All right. And I know your dad's like beaming. So, well, he's going to hold it together just long enough to get through my sermon. I think that's what's going to happen. So if you would turn in your Bibles, to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. We're going to continue on over the past couple of weeks. We've looked at the tabernacle. Um, this place of God's dwelling with his people where God said, build a tent for me. I want to come and I want to dwell among my people. And they would set up the tent wherever God would stop in his presence. They would set up the tent and he would come and dwell. His glory would fill this tabernacle. And, and in the building and the design of the tabernacle, we've seen that it points to the restoration of paradise in Eden, of looking back to God dwelling with his people there. And sin had broken that relationship, and now it's being restored 
in God. It's pointing forward to the new heavens and the new earth. It's pointing upward to heaven and God's home. We saw in Revelation this picture of this cube, which is the presence of God, which is the holy city, which is the new heavens and new earth. And this cube structure of the tabernacle is pointing forward to that. But it's also reminding us, we've seen how it reminds us that we as the church, as the body of Christ, are the dwelling place of God on this earth. His spirit dwelling in us, that we are the ones who take him with us wherever we go. And we've also seen that every aspect of this tabernacle points us to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and everything in it. That Jesus is the one who has tabernacled among his people, John 1.14 tells us. So when we talk about finding the meaning of the symbols in the tabernacle, because that's what the tabernacle is. It was a literal structure. It was a real structure, but it was symbolic of something greater. That's why we're talking about finding the shadows of Jesus here is because there's a greater reality at hand. What we don't want to do is over-spiritualize this, okay? We don't want to over-spiritualize this by trying to find meaning in every single thing, okay? So when we're talking about the form and the function of the tabernacle, we don't want to make the mistake of thinking everything is a symbol, okay? Because if we make that mistake, here's an example. There were cross beams in the tabernacle. I don't think that they were pointing forward to the cross in the New Testament, okay? Why? Because the Bible doesn't point them to the cross, Okay, there are places in scripture and we've read in Hebrews where the veil had something to do with a, an image that the Lord wants us to understand the greater reality of in the future. Right. The Ark of the Covenant had a greater reality in the future. The tables and the instruments, the altar would all have a greater reality in the future. The cross beams that hold up the tent are there to simply hold up the tent. Okay, we don't need to find symbolism in everything. If we do that, we're going to get lost in the weeds, right? And when we get lost in the weeds, we miss the point. So could there have been meaning in the different colors of thread used in the tapestries? Absolutely. God designed what he wanted. Does the Bible tell us what all of those mean? No. Should we spend a whole lot of time on it? No. Okay, everybody's with me on this, right? That if it doesn't have a point in the Bible, then we're not going to spend a lot of time trying to find the symbolism. That's over-spiritualizing. But we also don't want to under-spiritualize this, where we miss the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of what God is doing in the form and the function of the tabernacle. So what are we going to do? We're going to look at the meaning as held by the Israelites there in the wilderness, what it looked like in their culture, how it was used, what the function was. We're going to look at the Old Testament writers, the, the prophets, the psalmists. We're going to see how they interpreted what was going on in the tabernacle. And we're going to look to the New Testament and the fulfillment in Jesus and what we're told about the tabernacle. So thus far, we've seen in the design of the tabernacle, the rooms... The, the shape, this cube-like structure of the Holy of Holies, we've already talked about that, how that points forward to a greater reality. We saw in the materials of the tabernacle, the, the way that things were built in the tabernacle, the things of gold pointing to the purity and the holiness of God. We've seen the presence of God among his people, the glory of God there resting above the mercy seat. We've looked at the mercy seat as something pointing forward to Jesus. We've, we've seen all of that. And we see the shadows of the finished work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection there in the tabernacle. But today we want to spend a few moments looking at some more of the furniture. 
some more of the furniture. And you're like, great, I came to church to learn about furniture. It's in the Bible. It's got to be important. And it's got to be for us. Right? We're told very plainly in the New Testament that these things are written for us that we would learn and grow. And that we would not make the same mistakes that the people in the Old Testament made. All right, so there, there's something for us here that's going to be really essential for us to understand. So when we understand where we are in the tabernacle, so remember where we are, there's that holy of holies, that cube light structure, which is the innermost section of the tabernacle, the back room of the tabernacle. This is God's throne room, right? And there's the Ark of the Covenant. We're stepping outside the veil now into the holy place. What we are thinking of as the open concept living room, dining room, okay, of the tent. So that's what we've got. Okay, so everybody picture that. Open concept, living room, dining room. You've got tables and lanterns. Okay, so this is what we're doing now. This is the place where the priest would come in and they would do the work of the priesthood, right? All of the sacrifices are done outside. They're bringing everything in, and this is where they're preparing. This is where they're getting ready to go into the Holy of Holies. This is where all of the fragrant offerings are being offered. This is the work of the priest happening here, Aaron and his son. So if you would look at Exodus chapter 25, and I want you to see these holy things of God. The first is the table of showbread, and in verse 23 of Exodus 25, we read this. You shall make a table of acacia wood. We've seen this before, right? This is how we're supposed to make the ark. This is how the people were to make the ark. Make an ark, make a box of acacia wood. Then he says, two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. Sounds much like what was happening in the Holy of Holies, right? And you shall make a rim around it, a hand's breadth wide. And a molding of gold around the rim, probably to keep things from falling off. Because this thing's going to be carried from place to place to place, right? And as it's carried, you don't want things falling off, okay? And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners of the four legs. We know what those are for because of the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to put poles there, right? Close to the frame, the ring shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Verse 30 is where we're going to hang out a lot of the time here. Okay, I want you to see that. So we have the form of the table. We have how do you build the table? What does it look like? And the form of the table of showbread, that's the name that the Bible gives this table, the table of the showbread, the table of the bread of the presence. Another place says the table where the bread of the presence was laid. This is the way the Bible talks about it. And so you notice there in this passage, it's form. The rest of the Bible talks about the function of the table, not the form of the table. We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the form, what it looked like, But the function of the table is the most important thing. It's a holy table. It's not huge. It's about the size of a coffee table. Okay? So in its size, it's not a big table. It's just the size of a coffee table. It has rings for carrying poles to be, so it will be moved with the people when they pick up camp. It's going to go with them. All of the plates and bowls and dishes were to be made of pure gold. Now, what's interesting about the poles on this table is they were removable, unlike the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the Ark of the Covenant, the poles would go in there and they were never to come out. So that no one would ever touch the Ark. That was the Holy of Holies, right? Now we've got poles that come in and out. 
to move the table. So it's not in the same stand, standard as the uh, Ark of the Covenant. It, it's, it's different. But it is set apart and pure for the holy work of the priest. All of the instruments that are going to be used are made of pure gold. They're going to be making offerings to the Lord. But the true meaning of the table is not found in its form. It's really found in its function. The table was really more about what it held. Thus the name. The table of the showbread, right? It's all about what goes on the table. And and we understand this, right? Because you have, you possibly have exercise equipment in your house that doesn't operate as exercise equipment. You might have a treadmill that operates as a coat rack, right? And you understand that. We we have in our house um, an ironing board that is a hanging station, right? I iron. I'm the only one in my family who irons. I iron everybody's stuff if it needs to be ironed. If somebody needs something ironed, I iron. I'm the one who irons every week. Okay. Most of the time, nobody in my family wants anything ironed, though. So I iron. But it's also the place that after it's ironed, it goes on a hanger and it hangs on. So the ironing board just stays up and it becomes a hanger place as opposed to an ironing board most of the time. See what I'm saying? It has the form of an ironing board, but it's really the function is really just a place to hang things may have the form of exercise equipment, but its function in a lot of people's homes is actually dirty laundry, right? What we got to make sure we're understanding here with this table is the form, though designed by God, is not the primary reality of the table. The table is all about the function. It's all about what it holds. And, and if we're going to see what it holds, we can't see that in this passage. You've got to flip over to Leviticus chapter 24. So go ahead and flip over to Leviticus chapter 24. We'll come back to it even later. And I want you to see here in Leviticus chapter 24 about the bread, because this is the table of the showbread. And this is what it says, beginning with verse 5, Leviticus chapter 24. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. You, you see where we are now? We're back into this holy place, and they're putting this. This is the bread that goes on the table. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly, It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. So there's lots of offerings, lots of sacrifices being made, but this is one way that God provides for the priest. Okay, so here's what's happening. Every day before the Sabbath, they would bake the bread by God's design. And on the Sabbath day... Aaron would go in and arrange the new bread on the table and take the old bread, and he, is his, he and his sons, the priests, would eat the old bread. Okay, And this was their portion as a covenant relationship with God. So, so what's important for us here in the function of this table and this bread is what it says about God and our relationship to him. It says there in Leviticus that this is a memorial portion of the food offering. It's also a part of the covenant forever. So this is a relational thing. But the first thing we got to see is this bread was not like the bread that would be offered to other gods. Okay. So in the ancient Mesopotamian world, 
you would make bread offerings to gods. Evidently, gods in ancient Mesopotamia loved bread because you make lots of bread and grain offerings to them, and it was to feed your god. But our god doesn't need to be fed. Our god is the one who feeds. Is everybody with me? And so this is not like that. This isn't they're making an offering to God because he's hungry. The bread was not because God needs anything, but to remind God's people of their need of him. The bread was there not to say, God, we're giving you what you need. No, Acts 17, 25 tells us really, really plainly that God is not in need of anything. It says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is the source of life. He's the giver of life, of breath, of bread. He's the giver of everything that we need. He is life himself to his people. And the bread is there to remind the people of their need of God. Psalm 107.9 says he satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry soul he fills with good things. The bread was not because God needed anything. It's because we needed a reminder. How often does God do that in our lives? We come to church. Why? Does God need for us to worship him? He's not in need of anything. But do we need to be reminded weekly that God is worthy to be worshipped? And this is why he's brought us together. The bread was also to remind God's people of God's gracious provision. That God is constantly providing for his people. In the wilderness, he did it. He gave them manna from heaven. In fact, in the Ark of the Covenant would be a jar of manna to remind the people that God is the one who provides. He's already told them to make sure you have festivals on the harvest days. So he's reminding them that he is the one who gives them all that they need in the harvest. And and the fact that they've got to do this every single week from generation to generation, and this is a sign of the covenant forever, reminds the people that God is constantly providing for his people. He's doing it in perpetuity. He's always going to provide for his people. Each week with new bread being placed as the old is consumed by the priest. Didn't Jesus teach us this when he taught us to pray? When his disciples say, teach us to pray, and he comes, he he says this model prayer, what does he get to? Give us this day our daily bread. Understanding that we need the perpetual goodness and graciousness of God and his provision for us. It's by God's grace that we have provision every day. The bread was to remind God's people of God's gracious fellowship. Remember, just a, a little while ago, the Elders of the people had gone up the mountain. Remember, they went up the mountain with Moses and Aaron. And what happened when they came into the presence of God? They came into the presence of God. They went, wow. That's the first thing. The second thing is what? They had a meal. They shared fellowship with God. God does not just desire that we know about him. He wants to be known by us. He draws near to his people. He has relationship with his people. He loves his people and wants to be loved by his people. These 12 bread loaves, there were 12 cakes that were put on the table, each one representing one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Each tribe had a place at the table from the youngest brother to the oldest brother. Imagine if you're the oldest brother and you think you're a bad, bad man. But your youngest brother is getting the same place at the table. Imagine you're the youngest brother and you're like, we're small. We got nothing going on here. You have the same place at the table. You have the same access to God through his provision. Each of these demonstrating they had a place at the table. And God has invited his people to the table. And we have this picture in the end when we're all together around the bridal supper, around this wedding feast 
invited to the table. He's making for himself a people. He wants to be our God. He wants to draw near to his people. And so in this table, it's beautiful. It's not big. It wouldn't be the thing you'd first look at when you walked in and be like, wow. It's pointing us to the provision that God is our everything. And in God, we find everything we need. The next piece of furniture in the holy place is the lampstand. Look back at Exodus chapter 25. Look at verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. So we're still in this holy place, in this rectangular room inside the tent. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. So this is an intricate lamp. This is not something you made in shop and you brought home as a Christmas present, right? It's not the ashtrays you made in pottery class when you were four. This is real workmanship, and we remember from a couple of weeks ago that God designed specific people and gifted certain people to be able to make this for his glory. So the form is actually provided by God and then all of the means to make it as well. There shall be six branches going out of its side. So one major stem and then three branches going out each side. Three branches of the lampstand out on one side of it and three branches of the lampstand out on the other side of it. Verse 33, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So it looks like a tree. Everybody with me? It looks like a tree. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand and on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers. It's like a budding, blooming tree and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it. The whole of it, a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. Just think about the craftsmanship we're talking about here. This isn't a mold. This is hammered. This isn't something that they pour and it comes out like this. This is something that they're working and they're making all to God's design. And so you shall make, verse 37, you shall make seven lamps for it. And the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Go ahead and mark verse 37. Guess where we're coming back to. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. In form, the lampstand looks very much like a menorah, right? You can picture a menorah. This is what, and it looks like a tree. It has one central lampstand and six branches, each with a lamp. The lampstand, lamps and tools and utensils, everything needed are all made of gold, all pointing once again to holiness, all pointing once again to the purity of God, all there in the place of God to denote that he is God alone. They're all expertly made, all made out of one large piece of gold, all hammered out of a talent of gold. And if you don't know what a talent weighs, 75 pounds of gold. So this is no chintzy little lamp. You're not picking this up with Pier 1. You're not, right? This is a legitimate piece of furniture that's got to be carried from place to place. And there in the design, in the form of this of this lamp and this lampstand is this hearkening back to the tree of life. 
This beauty of being in the presence of God in this place that God placed Adam and Eve. This pointing back to the fact that God is the giver of life. God is the one who provides everything. All aspects of life-giving process and the growing process. From the bud to the flower. All of those are there on the on the menorah, on this lampstand. It points us back to the tree of life. It points us forward to the tree of life in the new heavens and the new earth. But it's really, in verse 37, what we see, it's really the function of the lampstand that makes it stand out. It's the function that actually makes it worth making. To simply make a golden lampstand and it not shine light means that it's not a lampstand. It's a hat rack. Are you with me? Okay. It has to shine light for it to be a lampstand and it to be useful. So the function becomes more important. Just imagine what it's like when the tabernacle, this tent, this heavy tent is set up and it starts to get dark outside. There are no windows. It is dark in this holy place. It is dark in the place where the priests are working. And so... It needs light. Leviticus chapter 24 verses 2 through 4 tells how they're to light this thing. Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. Every night when the tabernacle is set up, When the sun goes down, Aaron's lighting the lamps, and they're kept lit all night. This is God leaving a light on for you, right? This is him making sure you understand he's home. And this is also functional in the fact that the priests need light in order to accomplish all that the Lord has called them to do. So in the function, it points us even deeper and further into the character of God. And when we look at Scripture and see the significance of light... Throughout scripture, we begin to see the symbolic significance of the lampstand of the lamps for the people of God. First, people naturally walk in darkness apart from God. People naturally walk in darkness apart from God. Romans one twenty one tells us that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Ephesians 5.8 tells us as believers this, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. People naturally, our natural state is the darkness. We like the darkness. We like to hide in the shadows. We don't want people to know us for real. Even the most outgoing people keep things for themselves. We don't give ourselves To people and we don't put ourselves out there fully. Even if you, and the people that do make us all really uncomfortable, don't they? But the fact of the matter is, we find comfort in the darkness naturally. We find comfort in the darkness naturally. But God awakens us and gives us new natures where we don't like the darkness anymore. We need the light. We don't, we don't like death anymore. We want life. And so God, being light, says that he is light and there is no darkness in him at all. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. First John 1 John 1.5 This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Even the very act of creation demonstrates God speaking and saying, first, let there be 
light and light shone out of the darkness. And he does the same thing in our hearts. He brings us out of darkness into light. He shines the light into the darkness, exposes who we are so that we come into the light. God is our light and our salvation. Without his gracious light, we would always be in the darkness of sin and death. We would have no hope. Isaiah 9, 2 speaks of the Israelite people waiting for the Messiah. It says the people who have walked in darkness, that's their life. Their life is in darkness. Our life outside of Christ is in darkness. Those who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? When we come into the light and we see him for who he is. There is no need to fear. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You see, but this is the problem with the light. Our nature is we like the darkness. But when we come into the light of God's presence, sin is exposed. But I also want you to know forgiveness is given. Think about what's going on in the holy place there in the tabernacle. The sacrifices have been made. And they're coming in before the presence of Almighty God, having made sacrifice for the sins of the people, having made sacrifice for their own sins, and pleading with the mercy of Almighty God. But you come into the light to do that. You don't stay in the darkness of your sin, you come into the light. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 3 that we read earlier. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see, I can't see how evil you are when you stand in the darkness. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Without God's gracious work, we would be lost in darkness. But the call today is to come into the light. The call today is that because of God's gracious gift, come into the light. Have your sin exposed. Yes, it's painful to have your sin exposed, but there's forgiveness and healing. There's life where there was only death. And so in these two pieces of furniture, in this table of the showbread, and this lantern there to light, we see two great truths for us as God's people. God is our gracious provider of life, and God is our gracious provider of salvation. And this truth finds its fulfillment in none other than Jesus. And so as we get ready to close today, we move to the end of this season and getting ready for this celebration of this Messiah child, this king in a manger. I want you to turn over to John's gospel. So we're just going to do this real quick. I want you to turn over to John's gospel. Turn to John chapter 6, and then you can flip over to John chapter 8 as well. John chapter 6 and John chapter 8. Throughout John's gospel, if you'll remember in John chapter 1, Jesus is described as the light that's come into the world. 
And we also see in John chapter 114 that Jesus came and tabernacled among us. Remember, he made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Last week, we saw the end of John's gospel with the woman stooping and looking into the tomb. And when she looked into the tomb, what did she see? She saw two angels at the head and the foot of where the body had been laid. And it's hearkening us back to that looking into the Holy of Holies. Where the cherubim were flanking the, the mercy seat of God. Right? And so from beginning to end, we have this imagery of this Old Testament just kind of flooding through us. If we read it with Old Testament eyes, we'll be like, whoa. And you see all of this. Well, guess what Jesus does throughout the book of John? The book of John is basically divided into in this way. I am, I am, I am, I am. There are seven I am statements that Jesus speaks throughout the book of John to tell who he is. And he is, once again, hearkening back to God telling Moses, I am that I am. He's saying he is God in flesh and, and he's telling us who he is, revealing again that he's the fulfillment of everything that God has promised. These I am statements reveal himself as the one that the people have been waiting for. And so in John chapter 6, after miraculously feeding the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, he explains what's just happened and why the people don't seem to get it. In verse 32 of John chapter 6, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Look down at verse 50. He says it again. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread. That came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is the fulfillment of every bread prophecy in the Old Testament. Because he is the presence of God with us. And he says, and this is what it looks like. This is how I give for the life of the world. The bread I give is my flesh. He would be crucified for us. Jesus is the bread of life that sustains his people, those who place their faith in him. He sustains us eternally through his death, through his resurrection, through his word and through his presence. Jesus is the fulfillment as the bread of life. Flip over to John chapter eight. That shouldn't be hard to find if you're in John chapter six. John goes on to say this, and it's immediately after in the story and in the narrative Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of the religious people there when the woman is caught in adultery and they bring her and say, you're going to you're going to stone her. And he says, he who is without sin should cast the first stone. You remember this story? He's exposing their hypocrisy, exposing their sin. What does the light do? Exposes sin. And now they made the mistake of bringing their evil deeds into the light right there in Jesus's presence. And what does Jesus say to them in verse 12? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John's already told us in John chapter 1 that Jesus is the light that's coming into the darkness. 
In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In verse 9 of John 1, he says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the light of the world that brings eternal life to his people. The right to become children of God. The Apostle Paul tells of his conversion when he's standing in trial in Acts 26. He he tells us this, that his whole conversion was that God was calling him to go to the Gentiles to be the light of the world. The same way that Jesus told us that we are to be the ones who are now the light of the world in Matthew's gospel. This is what Paul says in verse 18 of Acts 26. His calling now was to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is what Jesus called him to do. And so the question for us is, what are we doing with Jesus as the light in our provision? He's provided so much for us in his grace. Are we going and taking the light of his gospel to others? You see, in his eternal presence, every provision will be taken care of. And the light of his glory, the glory of God in Jesus will illuminate all of heaven. There will be no need for a tabernacle, no need for a temple, no need for a lamp or lampstand, no need for a table in his presence. As Revelation 21 tells us, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And that's where we need to take our hearts and our minds today. To the glory of Jesus who opens the way into the presence of God. Not just to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles. To all who come by faith in Christ. To the nations. The nations bringing tribute to the true glorious king. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those who have found their life and salvation in Jesus Christ alone. So today the question for us is not really, what what does the table do? What does the lampstand do? The question for us is, is my name written in the Lamb's book of life? The question is, do I know Jesus Christ as my light and my salvation? Do I know Jesus as the bread of life and the light of the world? And so if you're watching online, you're here today and you don't know Jesus as the light of life. The light of the world. He's not shown that light into the darkness of your heart and exposed your sin and then brought forgiveness to you. Today is the day where he says, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. You can find provision, look for provision in other places, but you'll never find provision for your heart that's eternal. Is my name written in the Lamb's book of life? Because then and only then am I invited into the presence of the glory of God forever. Otherwise, I'm left out. 
Is my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? As the band comes up to lead us in a closing song, I want to ask you that question. Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Because then and only then are you invited into the presence of the glory of God forever. It's not how good you are, how right you are, what your parents believed, where you came from. None of those things are going to add up. All of those things are as filthy rags before a holy God. It's only the, it's only the perfection of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, that can make you right with God. Would you trust Him today? Father, I pray that today we would trust Jesus. We'd be drawn into Jesus. That as we get ready for Christmas, that we would not forget Jesus. That we wouldn't get caught up in naughty or nice. But we would understand that none of us, apart from Jesus, is ever going to be nice. We're all naughty. We're all sinners. We're all falling short. We're all in the darkness, and it's only through the light of Christ that we can be changed. So thank you for Jesus who has come to us, the light of the world, the bread of life. May we never hunger again, but instead find all of our righteousness and hope in him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand together. We're going to sing a new song, and we're going to sing it again next week. I want to encourage you to learn this now. It's a hymn. Uh, It's to a hymn tune that you're going to understand. Come thou fount of every blessing with just some new words.